0: be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Academic Life. This is the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I'm your show's host and creator, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we are joined by Michael P. Jeffries, who is the author of the new book, Black and Queer on Campus. In it, Dr. Jeffries offers an inside look at what life is like for LGBTQ college students on campuses across the United States. Dr. Jeffries details that Black and queer students often struggle to find safe spaces, and a greater sense of belonging when they arrive on campus. Drawing on his interviews with students from over a dozen colleges, Dr. Jeffries provides a new, much needed perspective on the experiences of Black LGBTQ students on college campuses. From his intimate portraits, we learn that the traditional narrative of coming out does not fit most of these students. Rather, Dr. Jeffries describes the process of coming into the life and a more gradual transition to queer acceptance. While college is challenging for many students, it is especially daunting for Black LGBTQ students when Blackness is viewed as suspect, queerness is viewed as illness, and schools do not provide access to professionals who specialize in the issues Black queer students face. Black and queer on campus sheds light on the often hidden lives of Black LGBTQ students Describes how educational institutions can better serve them and reveals the quiet beauty and joy of Black queer social life. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jeffries.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I am so glad that you are here and that we get to learn more about your book from you. Before we dive into hearing about your book, will you please tell us about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I'm currently serving as Dean of Academic Affairs here at Wellesley. I've been here for quite a while. I'm a professor of American Studies, and most of my work uh, really deals with the intersection of race, politics, and popular culture. So my earlier work looked at things in the culture industry, like the comedy industry and hip-hop music. And... I also did some work on Obama and, and for this book, I just felt it was a moment in the history of the country and the history of black politics when it was really important to focus on um, queer black college students. So that's sort of how I came to the topic.
0: And you tell us more about that in the book, listeners won't always have gotten a copy yet, could you give us the elevator pitch of it? What? How would you summarize the book for people who haven't heard about it yet?
1: Sure. Well, I think there are a couple of different things going on with the book. One is, to be honest... LGBTQ plus black college students just haven't received the sort of attention that they deserve, both kind of historically in the kind of student affairs space and more broadly in the academic literature. So there just is sort of a shortage of, um, you know, real engagement with this group of folk when it comes to their experiences, their politics and things of that nature. So that's the first thing is there's just a gap in the literature. Uh, The second thing is uh, when I set out to write the book, It was really at a moment when the Black Lives Matter movement was um, a very important piece of the social fabric of this country. And as many of our listeners will know, that movement was founded by queer Black women. And I was extremely interested in the extent to which Black Lives Matter was viewed by queer Black college students as sort of their social movement, right? Because it was started by queer black folk, but some of the representations of what it was and what it stood for had gone in different directions. So those were sort of the, the motivating factors that kind of got me into the work. And then the more I spoke with uh, the students, the more I felt there was so much um, more to talk about than just their politics. I mean, at a very basic level, this is a look at what the day-to-day lives are like for LGBTQ plus students. Um, who are Black folk at both predominantly white institutions and at HBCUs.
0: And so that we break down the terminology for the listeners... In the book, uh, predominantly white institutions are abbreviated as PWI, and you just referred to HBCUs. Can you give a little of the history of what HBCU really means?
1: Right. So HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. Um, These are uh, colleges and universities that were uh, founded in the United States as exclusively black colleges and universities uh, when education was segregated. In the 1960s, they became historically black colleges and universities, and they had to kind of open up their admissions policies to folk who were not only black, but people of different backgrounds. But what we have now is over 100 uh, HBCUs in this country of various sizes, some of which are public and some of which are private, some of which are very well known, like Howard and Morehouse and Spelman, and others of which are relatively unknown. And these serve a huge portion of uh, black college students. And importantly, um, what we see among graduates of these institutions are a host of really important outcomes like job satisfaction, self-confidence. Across many of these metrics, we see that Black students actually do far better when they attend HBCUs than they do when they attend PWIs. And yet, uh, they're kind of thought of as an afterthought. um, Most of the time when we're talking about the experiences of Black college students, I think that most of the time when Black college students are invoked in the kind of popular imagination, they're imagined as sort of minorities on a white campus. But that's just not the totality of the experiences of black college goers. Uh, so, so I kind of really wanted to kind of put that on the table, too, to really foreground the importance of HBCUs. And in fact, most of the students I spoke to in the book were from HBCUs. So it really does provide a, right, a wide cross-section of those experiences.
0: And in the book, you break that down for us. You talk about your own positionality and you talk about um The 65 students that you interviewed, 40 of them are from nine different HBCUs. 25 of them are from seven PWIs. You also go through the list of pseudonyms that you give the schools. Can you talk about how you created the methodology to go about this and your working with your own positionality to do so?
1: Yeah, I'll answer. Thank you for the question. I'll answer the positionality part first. I think it's really important to say that I come to this work as an ally. I'm not someone who identifies as part of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, though I am black. So I have kind of many experiences and connections um, with queer black folk and love for queer black folk, um, both in my family and in other spaces. Um, But it's not talking about it from a kind of personal sense of what I went through as a college student, right? So I wanted to say that right off the bat. Um, And then the other piece of it with respect to how the methodology was sort of built for the book, um, what I did was I really looked around for publicly listed Uh, queer black student organizations and if you kind of search around this was years ago when I was doing this research but it used to be that you could find uh, bits and pieces of these listings just kind of widely available on the internet and then once I found those student organizations I reached out to the faculty or staff director or mentor who was sort of connected to those places to those organizations and asked them if they thought uh, some of their students might be interested and speaking to me about their experiences on campus. So I didn't kind of reach out to students in kind of cold emails, just emailing them directly. Um, I didn't recruit students in a truly random way either. I was kind of following leads and doing snowball sampling in order to build up the sample. But really through this process of referrals, I was able to get uh, my foot in the door to a number of places. And and to be honest, um, these students really had been eager to talk to someone about what their lives were like. Because as I said, many of them felt ignored. Uh, They felt sort of subsumed by the kind of stereotypes of LGBTQ life on campus or subsumed by the stereotypes of the kind of minoritized black life on white campus. And and none of those stereotypes really fit uh, their actual day-to-day experiences.
0: And one of the things that you point out in the book is the students didn't want to have to define themselves as activists either. How did you come to focusing this on dailyness? Did the students guide you towards the importance of looking at them just as students who are trying to live their lives? How did this really drill down to its true topic?
1: Yeah, this is a really important point. So as I mentioned, part of what motivated me to write the book was the power of the Black Lives Matter movement and the kind of political moment that the country was in when I began this process, so I sort of into it. I sort of went into it almost kind of naively, assuming that I would find a more sort of activist sort of um, a more sort of activist orientation among the students because of the political moment and because of their positionality in it as queer Black folk, and because I think we're in a moment right now when queer Black visibility. Is as important as it's ever been, certainly to mainstream American popular culture. I mean, you look at the success of uh, queer Black celebrities and authors and actors and musicians, and that visibility is, is really fantastic and pathbreaking. And it suggests that sort of queer Blackness is having its kind of political moment, right? So I was interested to see if that political moment was reflected in the day-to-day lives of these students. But then when I started speaking with these students, they really didn't describe themselves most of the time in political terms. Um, They thought of themselves as sort of, you know, just regular folk with the regular concerns of college students, right? Trying to study, trying to hold down a campus job at the same time as taking care of their academics, maintaining connections to family, navigating relationships with friends and significant others. Um, They didn't think of themselves as political animals first, right? Uh, Political people first. They thought of themselves as um, just folk who were trying to navigate the college experience. And once I was able to kind of let go of my personal focus on the political moment, what was revealed to me was the sort of mundane beauty of queer Black life, the way that these folk found connections amongst each other, the way that they built community, um, the way that they struggled and persevered uh, through those struggles, the way that they navigated relationships with their family in a kind of ongoing and sometimes one step forward, two steps back way. Those kinds of mundane Black, sto- black queer stories, instead of the kind of stereotype of spectacular Black queerness, I think is a piece uh, of this narrative that needs to be told and emphasized. I, I think it's, it does a-, a bit of a disservice to reduce queer Blackness to any one thing. Right. It is not solely spectacular and fabulous all the time. It is not solely mundane and ordinary all the time. It is really a mix of all those experiences and the diversity of queer black life, I think, is what really shines through in the book.
0: And these 65 students are self-selected to come be part of it. They Did they fill out surveys for you? You have a lot of uh, information about how they identify. You had three students who were transgender. You had uh, 18 who identified as gay. You had a whole uh, list uh, on page 30 that breaks down how everybody identifies themselves. Um, Did they do that through uh, personal writings they gave you, all through oral interviews? How did you collect all the data that you needed?
1: Yeah, they filled out surveys, but they were optional surveys, and I really didn't provide them with a prescriptive list in terms of the labels that they used, right, to describe themselves. I didn't provide them with a prescriptive list that limited the ways that they were describing themselves. So the answers you see kind of printed in the book are the answers that that they gave. And I, and I think that that's an important part of this story, too, because though we use this kind of abbreviation LGBTQ+, it really doesn't capture all the ways that these folk are thinking about themselves Um, as they're kind of moving through this, this phase of their lives. Now, what you said, though, is a really important piece of this, Uh, because this isn't, um, this was a voluntary sample, right? everyone who participated and chose to speak with me was choosing to speak because they wanted to be heard. I really can't make the claim that this is like truly representative, right, in an empirical way of all Black LGBTQ plus college students. What we have here is a really good, I think, slice with a, with a bunch of diversity, but it, but it does lead you to ask, well, what about the folk who didn't want to speak with someone like me, right? Who didn't want to speak to a professor about their experiences on college campuses? Maybe they just didn't want to talk, or or maybe they they felt as though they couldn't really um, be protected and safe, even though the the data is anonymized. Um, So so it's important to understand that what you're seeing in the book is a collection of folks who were comfortable enough to talk to me in in the first place. And I think it's important to understand that there are so many other folk who belong to this community who didn't make it into this book, right? Because they didn't feel like talking to me or because they weren't college students or whatever the case might be.
0: And you do uh, say that in the book and that you're adding to the conversation. You're very... um careful and thoughtful in the part where you talk about fabulousness and how this is about more quiet lives not to, for one way of being to take away from the other or to be pigeonholed you can embrace fabulousness while living a quiet life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think I think one of the things to emphasize here is this is not just me like pontificating or 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 Intensely interpreting what the students are saying. When folk read the book, what they're gonna see is certainly my voice is in there as the author, but we're gonna they're gonna see long sort of quotes and explanations from the students themselves right? So I don't have to do a lot of convincing, right? When, when I ask a student, well, what do you like to do for fun, right? And they say, well, I like going to museums or I like watching movies or I like writing poetry <laughs> or whatever it might be. They're the ones telling the readers, right, about all the kind of ordinary things that they do. So, so this really isn't about, you know, a kind of heavy-handed interpretation or reinterpretation of what queer Blackness is. It's about laying out what the students told me so that everyone can see there really is no one way to live this life and belong to this community.
0: It really does provide their voices right from the opening. We meet two different students who are leaving for college, and they both have very different uh, starting points. One, the stepfather is really encouraging um, them to go. The other one, the father is discouraging. Do you want to open it up for us with these two very different voices, these two very different ways of heading out on their paths?
1: Yeah. So maybe, maybe I'll just tell one to give a sense of it. Um, The the one from Darren, I think is the one you're referring to where uh, Darren comes from a family. These are all pseudonyms. Darren comes from a family where he had a stepfather who, when the college process was sort of just getting started, um, really sort of recommended um, the HBCU experience to him. And Darren talked about how because this recommendation came from his family, it kind of gave him the sense of the family feeling of an HBCU, it gave him a sense of the kind of belief that his stepfather had in him, uh, the kind of mutual sense of identification, they could see themselves in each other, the stepfather could see himself in Darren, Darren could kind of see himself in the stepfather. And I highlight this story because I think very frequently the narrative we hear about black parents and their queer kids, And especially uh, the narrative we hear about Black men and Black queerness and the narrative we hear about the appropriateness of the HBCU experience or the health of the HBCU experience for queer Black folks suggests that it's going to be sort of a hostile environment for those people. But, But here we have a story where, first of all, we have a kind of found family member in the stepfather role. Uh, really identifying with his queer son and identifying a black space, the HBCU campus, as the space that was going to allow this queer black boy to reach his full potential. And then that kind of story, I think, is one that we just do not hear very often when it comes to uh, these communities. Now, there are other stories, as you as you noted, where you could tell relationships between family members were really, really strained. Sometimes there was a, a heavy degree of religiosity that really influenced the parent and child relationship. Um, sometimes there was just a sense that uh, the child was putting themselves in danger simply by being gay and out of a kind of protective instinct, right? Black parents wanted to protect their kids from that life and end up advancing a really homophobic and transphobic agenda. Uh, So to, to be sure, this is a really thorny area, but in the story of Darren that appears early in the book, we see the kind of possibilities of black love and black empathy that can cross lines of gender and sexuality and suggest that rooting one's college experience in a black space can be the best thing for queer black people. It's an unusual, I think, story given the stereotypes that we have the most access to.
0: What you just said opened up a couple of sub themes in the book. One is that you wanted to talk about uh, the misunderstanding of whether black churches are more homophobic or more conservative than other religious establishments um, and the importance of friendship groups for students who are not getting family support. Do you want to uh, touch on both of those? Cause we you opened those up a bit in your previous answer.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll try to start with, the uh, um, religiosity question because I think what, what we have in most of the research is I'll sort of use the absence of evidence and evidence of absence language. There's an evidence, there's an absence of evidence, right. That, um, highly religious experiences in families and spaces of worship really does a lot of good, right? For queer black folk. Like there are plenty of studies. I'm thinking of the work of Minion Moore and others, right? Who talk about the relationship between black religiosity and queerness. And it's not that it's impossible to find such a healthy relationship, but um, most of the research that we have suggests that historically, black churches have been really difficult spaces for queer black folk to lead their their kind of complete lives. And it's somewhat paradoxical because we know that churches in some regards are spaces where queer blackness really flourishes, in particular in the music section, the choir director, et cetera. Those are spaces that have been home to um, queer black flourishing for generations and generations, but it's sort of been unspoken and hidden in those spaces and the more public facing leadership of the black church. Um, the more public facing kind of pop cultural face of the black church has always required or requested a kind of subjugation of black queerness in the name of a politics of respectability and morality. And there's no better book on this than Kathy Cohen's fantastic work, Boundaries of Blackness. So if anyone wants to to read a little bit more about that story, that's the book that I would recommend folks check out. Right. So, so that's one piece of the story. On the other hand. Right. What we have then are students who some of whom really do walk away from their religious communities that they were raised in, uh, That some of whom experience this as a significant rupture with their family and find it really difficult uh, to relate to their parents and their siblings and their extended family because of a degree of religiosity and the strictness with which uh, that kind of sexual respectability is policed. Um, But some of the students um, have found ways to think about their relationship to religion and their relationship to God and spirituality in ways that are self-affirming. So, language like "I know God doesn't care about my gender or sexuality because God doesn't make mistakes. He made me the way I am, and it's not a, and nothing about what he what God did uh, is a mistake. So, I have a personal relationship with God no matter what happens in the church when I go home, right? So, so I think that. On one hand, we have a kind of historical story of really kind of uneasiness and kind of paradoxical silencing in the in the black church when it comes to queer black folk. And on the other hand, we have a kind of emergent story of the kind of repair of black spirituality and a a new journey in black spirituality and religion among many uh, young people who don't want to let it go altogether, but are trying to build communities that validate who they are. So so that's kind of the first, uh, the first piece of it with respect to the religious story. And I think the second question you asked was about community building. I don't want to get it wrong. So can you kind of restate it for me?
0: It was about the friendship networks they're building if they don't have the family support to uh, you know, such an emotional time in college because you're deliberately going towards greater and greater challenges and you need somebody who's got your back. And for many students, they find friendship networks to be invaluable for that.
1: Absolutely. So the notion of found families is a very well-established notion, right? When we're talking about LGBTQ LGBTQ plus communities, right? This experience of um, feeling rejected or not feeling rejected, being rejected by one's home family or birth family because of your gender and sexuality and having to go out and rebuild a new family uh, from a community of people who aren't blood relation, but are nonetheless uh, people who provide love and care and support for you. That's not unique uh, to the students in the book. And to be sure, I found a whole lot of that right among the students who who really did talk about their friends um, as family members, who talked about uh, the bonds that they were building in college, as bonds that they believed would last far beyond their their time on campus, and I think that the important piece of this, uh, that maybe there are two things worth worth emphasizing. One is that um, this friendship building process is heavily influenced by racial experiences. So it's not, I mentioned the kind of found family phenomenon among LGBTQ plus folk, but often LGBTQ plus spaces aren't entirely welcoming for black folk because of you know, the kind of historical patterns of racism, no matter what type of, sort of community you enter into into this country, uh, you're gonna find some of those issues. So that's one thing. And then I think the second thing is finding peers right? Not just um, not mentors who are older, but finding peers who are almost at the exact same developmental stage as you, uh, that can really go a long way. So one of the things that struck me in the book was the extent to which they, they use a kind of familial language to discuss uh, their friends, um, not only brotherhood and sisterhood, but almost twinship. I mean, that was something that we heard that I heard uh, repeatedly in the book. And this sense that, you know, I'm not doing this alone. I'm doing this along with uh, my fellow siblings, my siblings who are, are really just like me. This is, not an iso- this is no longer an isolated experience where I'm, I, I'm feeling, I'm living at home, I'm feeling isolated in my school or in my family. I'm, do- I'm now living my life in a community for the first time. I think that was a really powerful element of going away to college for the young people that I spoke to.
0: You talked in the book about uh, queer black students taking on responsibility for making spaces that are specifically for queer black students can you share why generically queer spaces for lack of a better word didn't work that you you talk about the pervasiveness of white racism um, and so that may be a, a a topic you'd like to address separately or, or in addition to this. But the idea of opening a, a space for queer students may not be as inclusive as the ally thought it was going to be.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'll try to sort of talk about, recap a couple of experiences that the students described in the book as a way to try to get at the question. So one of the things that I heard from students was that you know, maybe they were going to the meeting of the kind of general queer student union, a, a multiracial, ethnic queer student union that doesn't have to, anything to say about race as part of its charter. And they would go to these meetings and the kinds of things that they would talk about in these meetings just didn't really suit the cultural interests or priorities of These uh, queer black students that I discussed. So anything from like the kind of music they would play to the kind of food they would eat to the kind of TV and movies that they would discuss all these kind of benign seemingly uh, kind of features of the cultural space of the group just didn't fit. Do you know what I mean? Like, like nothing—nothing nothing so uh, uh, hostile, outwardly hostile—happened in the meeting, but just a sense that these folk just had really different cultural interests and home experiences than many of the, the students had that many of the black students had. So that's one way in which the fit was kind of awkward, right? That's one way. A second way in which the fit could be kind of awkward was. These more general LGBTQ plus student unions open to folk of all backgrounds would be inclusive of people of color, but they would almost, it it seemed to some of the students in the book, like their inclusion was predicated upon an expectation that they would then speak up for the whole group, right? So then they were there not only on their own terms, but they were there to represent all queer black folk. Right. That and that was a pressure that they just really didn't need. I mean, something they experienced in their classroom too sometimes. Um, so there was one that was another thing that kind of made the experience awkward. Thirdly, there was a sense that sometimes they would go to these meetings or in their associations or friendships um with um, white queer students, queer white students, um, those students who thought of themselves as liberal and allies to uh people of color, it, it almost felt like um the white folks were very happy to kind of show off their black friends as proof of their own sort of, uh, I'll use the phrase kind of wokeness, even though it's a controversial uh, word these days, as proof of their own sort of enlightenment when it comes to issues of race. And that kind of tokenism really rubbed many of the students in the book the wrong way, right? The sense that they were there not because they were kind of fully contributing members to the group, but they were there because they became proof of white people's sort of political um, qualifications. And then a fourth thing, and I could go on and on and on, but a fourth thing that they talked about was just like outright, outright racism that they experienced in these groups, right? Whether it was... Um, racism in the dating market or uh, racism when it came to the kind of political issues that were being discussed and the sense of political priorities that were expressed among the groups. They didn't feel like some of the issues, especially when it came to racial politics and their experiences as Black people, were treated with the sense of priority that some of the other political issues were. They didn't feel that the kind of experiences that they had in the dating market were treated as huge problems, which they are in some of the queer communities that are being built uh, on these campuses. So, so I think that it's, it's all of those things, right? Some of the some of the misfit was more of a um, uh, was more of a kind of cultural mismatch. And some of it was really a a much more difficult and deeply rooted inability to see all the ways that racism plays out, both subtly when you're talking about tokenism, and then more overtly when it comes to kind of stereotypes and prejudice.
0: And it comes through in their stories in the book, I felt tired for them to work that hard to fit in, in a space that said you were supposed to fit in, in the first place, just, just by being, um, that the cultural references were off. They had to code switch. Um, as you mentioned a moment ago, that they were somehow contributing to other people's confirmation of their enlightened, um, views. Um, and so in creating, um, Spaces that were intentionally for queer Black students. When you read those sections, it it felt like they could relax.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, It it just it it let the air out of the balloon a little bit, like the pressure. I think you're right. It kind of took some of some of the pressure off. And I think that another thing is one of the things that that maybe I I could have written more about was I I wrote about it a little bit. Uh, The way the kind of conversation around coming out. Uh, played out in some of the black student organizations versus the more kind of mainstream LGBT organizations. I think I got the sense in speaking with these students, and this this really won't be surprising for for listeners who are, are familiar with these kinds of dynamics. Um, just a sense that the pressure to sort of openly and consistently live life out of the closet uh, was experienced as a kind of pressure that. Came predominantly from white queer culture. In some of the black queer spaces that students described, a kind of willingness to sit with the kind of you know the the diverse negotiations of questions about identity. Um, um, the extent to which coming out is a one-time thing or or do you come out in some ways but you really um live with more discretion in other ways there are just there seem to be so many more gray areas that students could fit into and live in in queer black spaces versus entering into more visible white spaces where the line between in the closet and out of the closet was talked about, it seemed like in a kind of harder and less negotiable way. And that sort of non-negotiable version of being in or out just doesn't fit the lives of many of the students that I talked to for the book.
0: Chapter four is called Coming Into the Life and it picks up on what you what you just mentioned that it's not so much about coming out as it is about coming into the life as a more gradual transition to queer acceptance. I also got the sense from reading it that these students who self-selected to come talk to you, to share with you the voices that you captured, these were students whose authenticity, they wanted to be internal and not from an external gaze.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the coming into the life language, again, I have to, refer to the work of queer black scholars who have come before me, not my language, you know, Minion Moore is someone I've cited earlier in our conversation. Uh, she writes about this very eloquently in in her work. Um, there's a sense of you described it as being sort of welcomed into an extant community, existing community. And I think it's not a one time welcoming. It's a process of negotiation and figuring out how am I going to Um, present myself? How am I going to um, understand my own identity in a context where I'm not willing, not only am I not willing to kind of give up or de-emphasize my Blackness, but the the attachment, the investment, the love for my own Blackness is kind of a non-negotiable Right, So, so what, what so many of the students are looking for are spaces that keep that front and center, even as you know, these questions of gender and sexuality are taking on an increasingly prominent role in, in their lives. So I think that's a big, a big part of the story is what is the responsibility, right? And what is the understood responsibility of the community of queer Black folk um, in taking an active role, taking a more active role in opening doors and creating spaces for their siblings uh, to enter and stay. I I think that's a real, that can be a real challenge. Um, But I think it's something that I heard consistently when it came to what are the student organizations trying to do? They're not necessarily trying to advance a specific political agenda. They're trying to spread their arms wide enough to get their arms around anybody who might wanna come in and sit.
0: And you remind us in several places in the book that there is no single way to be Black, queer, or Black and queer. Um, And that faculty and student affairs staff should be leading, not following on these issues. That was a, a point that was brought up later, but it comes through in the students that they have enough to do. They have homework. They have on-campus jobs. They have friendships to build. They have themselves to get to know. They have family relationships to navigate. Um, they don't also want to come in with the job of teaching the faculty or staff how to be a better space. Um, what do you hope this book will do Um to inform um, faculty and student affairs staff about the work they need to be doing in leading?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think I think so many of my colleagues work really hard on this. So this is, I think in many cases, it's not really a question of effort. It's a, it's a question of continuing to sustain the effort and providing resources to get the job done. So I think one thing, one really basic area is, this is not a surprise to anyone, but paying attention to recruitment and retention uh, of a diverse, Faculty and staff. I mean, this is an area where, because we're talking about diversity, uh, r- diversity of black folk, right? To think that you're going to have in an, any kind of organization where just a couple of people are looked to over and over again any time a quote unquote black issue arises is a mistake. It creates a, uh, an unnecessary burden on on the few the few black folk who are in the organization, and and it kind of distorts um, the answers that are arrived at as truly representative of black experiences or black opinion. So, so I think that when you have the opportunity to create a diverse staff, um, with diverse, diverse black experiences, you create ways for students to look to adults as mentors, to find people that they can connect with, to imagine a future, right, for a 20-year-old person, to see a 40-year-old person who maybe walked in their shoes. It enables them to imagine a future beyond the present moment when things might feel tough. So I just think, you know, increasing the diversity and and retaining uh, diverse faculty and staff is one huge piece of the story. Another thing on the academic affairs side is um, so much of the learning and community building around these issues happens in the classroom, right? So if you're a college or university that has doesn't have any strength or resources poured into um, academic areas like women's and gender studies or queer and trans studies or um, some of the critical ethnic studies disciplines, you're not gonna be providing the kind of environment that students um, can, can really thrive in to help understand the world that they have to navigate, to understand their own histories, because so many of these histories Uh, Queer black histories are hidden from students all their lives and when you think about the kind of book banning that's going on in various states around the country right now there's no better example, so I think that unearthing some of these histories and allowing the students to understand their own power their own legacy as members of queer queer black community that has deep deep roots and a whole lot of glory to draw upon, I think that's a really important part of the story too. So on the academic side, right, we need to teach this stuff. And on the student affairs side, we need to build out uh, an organization that really reflects the diversity of our student body.
0: You talked early on about when students are selecting a school and some of the students selected an HBCU uh, and some in your study selected a PWI, and that when they go to campus, they're looking to see who works there. When they're students, they need to find someone who can be their mentor um, and who can be their advisor, who they think will understand and respect them. Um, And so the retention of um, faculty and staff who are um, diverse is incredibly important to students being supported throughout their education
1: yeah it's huge it's huge and and I think that it sometimes what happens is faculty in fact in their role as a faculty get sort of drawn into the these other roles as um advisors to student groups or student clubs, not necessarily only in the lgbtq plus space but but in other kinds of spaces too and that that I think has always been kind of a healthy part of the job, but we have to recognize as administrators right that that is If that is part of the job, it needs to be recognized. It can't be the kind of invisible labor that faculty are expected to do on top of all the other stuff that they have to do with respect to publishing and teaching, et cetera, because it's vital. I mean, what we're doing here is on these campuses is we're building a community of learning, a a real community where we're we're relying upon each other, where we're talking to each other face to face where we're sharing physical space with each other. We're in the same space with each other. Uh, That kind of residential community of learners is core to the college experience. And that's a great strength of the college experience. We have to make sure that the burden of the labor, it's not only a burden, it's also a privilege, but we have to make sure that the labor is really understood and fairly compensated because it does make a huge difference. Students, as you said, students are perceptive. Students know what they're looking at when they go to campus visits. They listen to their peers who are hosting them about what life is like there. So so oftentimes they arrive arrive and there aren't that many surprises. It's kind of like what you see uh, is what you get.
0: And for the mentor or the professors that they had heard were allies or were helpful or who would understand because they lived a similar experience to not have burned out and be unable to be available or to have exited the, the job?
1: Yeah, no, no question. I mean, look, this is... The, these kinds of retention issues are, are, you know, we know where much of this burden falls. We know that it falls on younger faculty, uh, faculty who are women, uh, faculty who identify as LGBTQ+, faculty who are people of color. Uh, we, we've known about these issues for a really long time. And I think um, on our, on the administrative end, again, the first step is to kind of make as much of this work visible as possible. And the second, I think another step is to, under, to, to help uh, faculty in these positions try to figure out you know what do they want their own career to look like because it's it's really easy i think out of a place of empathy for all the right reasons to say yes to everything but you have to have a kind of uh, departmental culture and administrative culture that allows these faculty especially early career faculty uh, to chart a course that they feel most comfortable with and that that is a balance i think that everyone uh, who wants to do this work and pay it forward Has to to learn to strike, and we on the administrative side just have to be supportive as they navigate that terrain.
0: The way the book is structured, you emphasize your role as listener. The students' voices are very important, they are captured and quoted exactly. You dedicate the book uh, to your family and friends, but also to all the students who participated. It's clear that you feel really listening to students is very important. Have you heard from anyone in the study about how they've received the book now that it's out in the world?
1: I haven't had those kinds of conversations, but, but what I remember from doing the interviews was that, you know, sometimes in the immediate aftermath of the interviews, if I would send them the transcript, I, I did hear some of those comments. Again, you know, we, I, I, these conversations were in many cases, you know, an, an hour or more. So it's a short, I didn't know these folk for all that long, but you know, you, you build a relationship with someone when you have a, a conversation of a personal nature with them for one hour and, um. For the most part, like they really loved it. Like they loved having the opportunity. They didn't so much care that it was me, but they they loved having the opportunity to just reflect upon their experiences it's It's something that maybe they didn't get to do so much. They didn't feel like anybody really um, was as interested maybe as I was, but but I think they were just hugely appreciative to to kind of hear their own voice, to see the words on the page um to 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 kind of think through and affirm uh, all the things that they had done and how far how far they had come. I mean, I think especially when I was speaking with students who had been on campus for a while and could reflect on what it was like from the first day they showed up until their senior year when I was speaking with them. Uh, these were folk who had come a long way, who didn't know what they wanted to do when they arrived in college and had really found a sense of purpose, who had might have had a really strained relationship with their family when they went to college, but had slowly been dragging it in a more healthy direction and now felt like wow, things are so much better with my dad now than they were when I left. And they're better for my sister because of what I was able to do with my dad. I mean, having the, having the opportunity to reflect on that kind of progress, I think was something that was really, uh, really powerful. Um, so, so that was, that was a gratifying part for me was, you know, the students who, who did come to me after and say, you know, that was a great conversation. I'm so glad there's going to be a book about this now.
0: We only have a few minutes left. Um, what do you hope this book sparks for listeners?
1: Well, you know, this is this is a first swing at this thing. Um, we still do not have enough real engagement with young queer Black folk in terms of like on the academic side, prioritizing their voices. And it's really important just in the sense of we want to, you know, represent and understand everyone's experiences, but also because, you know, Because of the black queer radical tradition and the ways that so many of the foremost thinkers and activists in this tradition presaged the most important work that we've seen in terms of political activism, and radical thinking. Like, this is, in my view, one of the great wells of political imagination in this country the Black queer radical tradition. Whether you're talking about Baird Rustin or Stonehill, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, Stonewall uh, uprisings, um, we need to understand how much radical political imagination rests within this community of folk. And it's not a matter of extraction. It's a matter of nurturing. It's a matter of being willing to follow, being willing to listen without the expectation that they're going to take up the flag and be the vanguard forever and ever and ever. But I just think we have a lot to learn here. All of us have a lot to learn here when it comes to political imagination, because the reality is these folks have had to imagine a different way of life because of the racism, because of the sexism, the homophobia, the transphobia. They've had to imagine different ways of life that allow us to get to a better place than where we are now, right? When we have a kind of politics of of, uh, hate and insult and polarization rather than empathy, we're in desperate need of political imagination right now. And the black queer radical tradition has been a wellspring of that imagination for generations. So I hope one of my great hopes for the book is more and more people return to this source, right? Return to this source and partner with and listen to right? all the leadership that's contained within these communities. And then on the, on the other side, I just think this is a moment for higher education when higher education is under attack. And it's under attack from a variety of different sources. And I think that one of the things that the book does is it shows the value of these four years or sometimes, you know, more than four for people who are in this age range to go away from their families, live in residential communities and build bonds between each other. I mean, these are, these are powerful stories of self-affirmation and the ability to imagine a future for oneself. And in my view, it's an endorsement, despite all the problems on these college campuses, it's an endorsement of the power of this four year or six year experience for people who are able to go away to college. And we need to provide that experience and make it a nurturing and affirming one for as many students as possible.
0: Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Jeffries, and giving us a peek inside your new book, Black and Queer on Campus, available now from NYU Press. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to Academic Life. Please join us again.